Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. It's another Friday bonus episode because everything lined up. It was David Cronenberg's birthday on Tuesday, my guest Seth Smith's new film Tin Can drops on VOD today, and Seth picked the fly. So here we are. Seth is a filmmaker based in Halifax. His movies include Low Life and The Crescent, and you might also know him as part of the band Dog Day. His latest feature, Tin Can, is a trippy thriller starring Anna Hopkins as a researcher trying to stop a fungal pandemic that threatens all humanity, only to wind up trapped in a mysterious isolation pod and forced to figure out how to survive. Seth picked another movie about pods, The Fly. Cronenberg's groundbreaking 1986 remake of a gimmicky 50s film about a scientist who swaps body parts with a housefly in a teleportation experiment gone horribly wrong. Things are even more horrible in this version, since Jeff Goldblum's genius Seth Brundle is hybridized on a cellular level, slowly, painfully mutating into something entirely new, destroying both his body and his newfound relationship with the journalist Ronnie Quaife, played by Gina Davis, who was Goldblum's real-life partner at the time. It's monster movie as operatic tragedy, and Cronenberg's rigid focus on the central couple as things go from bad to worse to truly, truly awful makes The Fly feel like the most personal of horror stories. I think that's why it's a classic. This is someone else's movie. It's a, it's definitely a movie that uh, I watched when I was very young, and it it did stick with me over my whole life. And even today, I would consider it, you know, one of my favorite films. So when you ask me uh, what film I was, it was definitely one of the top ten, top you know few that came to mind. And uh, I was also, you know, I'm, I'm promoting a new film and. Uh, um, which kind of has some similarities as the fly and, uh, there's some parallels and, uh, it, although I don't think it was like a direct influence when I was writing or, or making it, it was, it's interesting to, you know, I was looking for kind of similar minded films and, uh, it was interesting to think about how much of the fly kind of leaked in. Like I have a small fly inside me right now yeah. <laughs> and I always will possibly. So, yeah, it's, yeah, when you when you chose it, I suddenly saw the connection just in the most literal sense in that it's about people becoming something else and also there are pods. But mm-hmm. I don't know that anyone who doesn't know that going in will see it, which I think is the best kind of influence where it's just viral or or it's in the DNA. It's yeah, it's a it's a it's a brundle fly. Yeah, yeah, right. Um yeah, that was one thing when I was the one thing I did re- I refer to the fly when I was filming Tin Can as I said. I just, I, I, I know I have these kind of pod shaped, you know, captivity, you know, these containers that, and uh, I just make sure that those don't look like the fly containers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was, well, and, and Cronenberg very famously said that he wanted them to look like um, uh, Ducati motorcycle cylinders, that it's an oh, upside right. down Ducati. Yeah. He was like, yeah, he was kind of a motorcycle fan at the time. I think he still is. He just doesn't talk about it. Yeah. Um, Engines (laughs) and machinery have always been a thing for him. Okay. Right. Beautiful machines. Anyway. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm stunned that no one has picked the fly before now. This is like episode 380 something and it's never come up. Um, but the, the, that movie has been, it's a part of my DNA too. It's been, I mean, I, I live in Toronto. It was shot here. I, uh, for, for for 13 years, I was around the corner from Kensington Market where they shot the scene where where they buy the, the where he buys uh, Ronnie the or sorry where yeah he buys Ronnie the bracelet okay and um, 
and I've seen the props and I've like, I've walked through that world over and over and over again. I, I had a, I think I still do. I had the script, an early draft of the script, which oh, wow. I found back when Hollywood Canteen was still a thing on, on the Danforth selling screenplays. Uh, I, I found the draft with the monkey cat sequence and the, oh wow um, and the extra arm, like all the stuff that was shot and cut. And just, it taught me how to, how to read movies in a weird way. Like I, Back to the Future came out a year earlier and that was my film school. I had, I just went every week, took someone else and watched it and broke it down in my nice. head. Yeah. And then, but then the fly made it all real in that, oh, you can make a movie here in Toronto that's about something and it isn't just an exploitation picture. And, and, and the, right, more, yeah. the more I saw it, but also I guess I was, it came out like the week I turned 18. So I, the, the, the preview, the press screening was actually two days before and I had to lie about my age to get in. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I definitely wasn't. Yeah. I was underage when I watched it. It was, I think I, I, I didn't watch it when it first came out, but I, I rented it as a VHS, I think. And mm-hmm. I kind of had a deal with my babysitter would it'd just rent whatever I wanted. So it was cool. But uh, so you no, were really, but yeah, but it was inspiring in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, the Canadian aspect's really cool. And, you know, now I'm very, you know, influenced by that. To, to, and uh, I'm sure, I, I, you know, I think he got a lot of pushback in those days, you know, because it was horror movies were a lot different, they're less sophisticated than they are today. And uh, and that's a, it's a pretty, you know, it stands out from the rest of the kind of B movies of that time, you know, or not oh, that yeah. it's a B movie, but, uh, you know, when you're comparing it to like, yeah, critters or I don't know, whatever. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> whatever it, was in the video stuff. Yeah, it um, certainly could have been a B movie. I mean, I think that was yeah. maybe that was maybe Fox's plan, right? Um, to to have a monster <laughs> movie with a doomed romance, and then Cronenberg comes along and turns it into. And I just I remember the first notes of Howard Shore's score, and you're just like, oh, this is an opera. Like this is serious. It's taking itself right. deadly seriously, and then it turns out, that, oh yeah, it's a movie about cancer it's a movie about losing yourself to a disease and losing someone you, and more to the point watching someone you love lose themselves to a disease it's just it's it was a uh, for me it was uh because i was watching all these other things at the time that were a lot more shallower you know in terms of story and uh for me it was uh it really had an impact on me because a it was kind of cool for me i i you know i i was really into monsters as a kid and uh, mm-hmm. to see a kind of a creature as kind of the, the main character of a film, you know, it, it was a uh, kind of special, but uh, also just, uh, you know, how sad it was. <laughs> At the yeah. end, uh, it was a very heavy, dark film and, uh, and that uh, you just really feel bad for the, the thing. Whereas like typical movies are just, uh, you know, it's about killing the monster and, you know, saving everyone and, uh, it it had a yeah it had a very you know, unusual hero kind of character too. I mean, as, aside from Gina Davis's you know role, there was the what was a staff staffist staffist born John John Getz yeah. yeah who yeah he, he and he was like just a real toxic kind of male character, but he ends up kind of being this unlikely hero at the end. Yeah, <laughs> with the shotgun and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just, it was kind of switching, you know, things around a little bit, which was interesting. Yeah, I mean, the toxic masculinity thing, in, especially in 1986, when we didn't even have words for it, is really interesting because not only is Stathis the asshole who 
saves the day, but does it like he does it badly. He really doesn't help very much. <laughs> he, he's the hero in his own mind, though, which actually pays in plays into like it's all the whole character thing is consistent. He's coming to save right, the right. day, gets mutilated for his trouble. Uh, he does help. But yeah, but the journey of Seth Brundle emotionally in parallel or not in parallel, but in direct contrast to Stathis is that he is a lovely, maybe self-absorbed, awkward nerd who becomes his worst self because of this thing. Well, yeah, there is like, there is some parallels between them because you see all this. I just watched the last night to kind of, you know, refamiliarize myself with it. And it was kind of interesting to see a lot of the stuff was based on like the, uh, you know, like some of these, uh, toxic traits where you know jealousy for example he's mm-hmm. status is always jealous of you know his his ex-girlfriend's new love and and then you see you see um the seth's the seth character he he basically kind of decides to jump into the teleporter you know untested because he's jealous that veronica is going back to her old love and it, it was interesting how those kind of you know uh those actions were kind of responsible for this kind of monster <laughs> in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's all about insecurity in, in strange ways. Uh, Seth is introduced to someone who is so confident in his invention because he knows it works. It's almost there. He's not expensive. Right, right. They leave me alone. Just all those little things that are seated in, like he's pretty high on himself, but he genuinely falls in love and that ruins him. And and I, I did find it interesting on the jealousy topic too. I would to just as he I don't know somewhere in like the you know third phase of him transforming. He he's he's like, are you jealous that I brought home another woman? And she's like, no, I'm not jealous. I'm just really concerned about you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and he's and and again, we haven't even mentioned Jeff Goldblum's name. Yeah, but it, yeah, it's very it, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking also just after watching it, how terrific a uh, casting that was. Uh, I was just uh, his whole uh, insect-like mannerisms and and uh, the way he spoke. You know, a lot of it's, I think it's his, probably his greatest performance, but also like if you watch other films, there's part of it is just ingrained in it, him as an actor as well. Like he has a very vibrant energy that uh, I think works really well for that character. Yeah, but he, but but Cronenberg does that thing, right? He does it with Irons in Dead Ringers. He does it with Peter Weller in Naked Lunch. He did it previously with um, with Woods in Videodrome and, and Walken in The Dead Zone. He finds that quality of an actor and pulls it out of them to almost to a place where they're the, they themselves seem uncomfortable with it, which I find <laughs> absolutely fascinating. Like Goldblum is... Um, he's in amazing shape. He's got no vanity at the same time because he's just covering himself in latex and making himself look like a tumor and playing someone who is just aware enough of what's happening to him that we can feel it as tragedy rather than as irony. And he's doing all of this. Well, like sort of projecting physical and emotional pain. The vulnerability of it is just heartrending, even though you know that he's going to turn on a dime and just you, we, the, the jealous scene, right? Where he screams it at her. It's just there the whole time, this tension of who he is and what he's becoming. And 
Yeah, uh, the makeup one, the Oscar, Goldblum wasn't even nominated. And I remember at the time people were upset about that, that there was the expectation that it was going to be the first genre performance in you know decades mm. to be nominated for a serious awards consideration. And, and of course it didn't happen because I don't think the Academy yeah, the, saw it. The period, yeah. And the, yeah. yeah, I mean, today it might happen. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's yeah one of the best for sure. It's just... Uh... Yeah, it's very moving, and uh, he's a very likable character too. Even though you, you know he's a, he has this, he, he's very. I feel like I know people like that, <laughs> and uh, at a party, you know, and uh, that are talking about the projects too much. I do myself, and uh, but uh, yeah, he's a very likable character. Even after turning into to like such a yeah, just a, such a an awful kind of creature and character but yeah i think they cut, cut cut a few parts out didn't they that that uh maybe made his character a little less sympathetic uh, i think there was yeah. like a the well the monkey uh, cat right where he just uh, what, what happened i haven't seen that so it was oh wow i don't know that it's ever surfaced anywhere uh there's some test footage on on one of the blu-rays but i don't think the monkey cat scene was ever really completed um there was like a rough version that was screened for the the studio but it never made it into the finished film so he combines the surviving monkey which just disappears in the uh in the course of the the first in the like, sorry in the okay. finished film we never see the monkey again he, he mentions about how he mentions something about how he's sorry he killed he uh he teleported and oh, murdered right, his right, brother right. Okay. uh and it's a successful test and we never see him again i think the there might be a line of dialogue about having him sent off for tests or something to make sure he's still intact okay. uh I, but I what mean, happened in the in the other in the in the assembly cut i guess we can call it uh what happened in the test version was that he try he was already heavily mutating um and he brundle puts the monkey and a cat that he captures an alley cat outside his his lab he puts them in together in an attempt to figure out what happens if you gene splice with live oh, subjects awesome. and it's it's an abomination and he beats it to death um, it oh, sounds okay. absolutely horrific. And, and, so it's like an animal torture kind of thing. I could yeah. see why that wouldn't play well with test audiences. <laughs> yeah. And it's a way of demonstrating just how far gone he already is that he thinks this is going to work um, and, and maybe be helpful that he's torturing and being uh, he's, he's being cruel and, and torturing something else or creating something that he then has to kill uh, as a as a sort of a telegraphing of where he's going. Right, right. But if you. Well, it is, yeah, it, it is tricky with a with a with a character like that that makes such a traumatic kind of arc and in terms you know to this dark side like how can you you know still have see the good in what he's going through but yeah it was a step too far there's also there was a scene where he he murders a homeless woman uh who i don't know that that was ever filmed it's in the script right, um, right. she's referred to as a bag lady i think it was i mean you know the vernacular of the age um and he just he finds someone and either they provoke him in some strange insulting way, or he just goes full insect and, um, and murders her. Just uh, it's the first time you see the caustic vomit being used on a person. It would have been a very elaborate effect. I, I think they maybe even shot it, but it was never, uh, it was also never included in the, in a, in an assembly, in a, sorry, in a version screen for audiences. Uh, and it's the, scene after it's either the scene after ronnie leaves or uh and tells him she's going to get an abortion or it's two scenes earlier but it 
it definitely precedes the line, I'll hurt you if you stay. It's, it's using the audience's knowledge of what we've seen to inform the future. But I think it's, again, it's something he can't come back from as a character. He, he's no longer sympathetic if he's running around murdering people. Right, right. And the, um, the genius of, of cutting, the accidental genius of cutting the monkey cat scene is that when, at the very end, when Brundle says, you know, like, let's all be one person, let's, you, me, and the baby will be the ultimate family. It's fucking terrifying because we yeah, have right. no idea what that's going to look like. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I was uh, the one thing I actually, I actually found out today because I, uh, I guess I hadn't realized the the one problem I always kind of, I mean, I think this film is a masterpiece, but, uh, and I, I don't have any criticism really, but though I do feel like the end is very abrupt and, and it kind of ends in the middle of an action kind of sequence. And, uh, yeah, I, and I, I kind of felt like that would be nice to go back to the pregnancy issue or, or, or uh, you know, have just a meditative image to end with regarding that. But uh, I found it very interesting that there was a, a alternative ending that uh, with where uh, she dreams of her child as a butterfly yeah. coming out of a chrysalis uh and uh, yeah i watched it and it, i can see why they cut it because it was pretty i mean it was a stop animation stop motion animation and it was a bit clunky and didn't really match with some of the other puppetry and stuff but i actually cut like myself i i kind of like the idea of it if it, if they could have done it well but, but yeah i can see why it was good <laughs> yeah no I mean, there's a poetry to it uh narratively as well as as visually the idea of dreaming of a better future or some a, element of him that survives but as a think, bit of a space space odyssey kind of final image yeah yeah that's a good point i think though i think the movie he made deserves to leave people just ruined like there's something no. so powerful about him making right. a film about yeah, like ultimately, it's the metaphor for his father's cancer. I don't think he could conceive of tacking a happy ending onto it, right? So no, even if he tried, makes sense. Yeah, just cutting the black and just feeling the, you know, let it let that feeling continue. <laughs> uh, I think actually, I, I read that he that uh, the scene where David Cronenberg delivers her maggot child, yeah, that that dream sequence, uh, which is awesome. Uh, I think uh, that was originally written in possibly to be the ending, but they 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 moved it earlier for dramatic effect. Because um, oh, I think a lot of movies at the time kind of ended with a you know a sizzle, like a, the sting like that. Yeah, where <laughs> yeah. you're just left with another monster. But, but yeah, again, it but would, I'm definitely glad they didn't do that. That for sure. <laughs> yeah, it would cheapen the it would cheapen the suffering somehow. Like it's the -hmm. thing that is so powerful about this is that it is just a chamber piece. There are three main characters. There's a couple of other people who turn up, but they don't count. You know, Tawny is, she's a diversion for Brundle and that's her function as a plot. Like that's as close as it comes, I think, to an exploitation movie where there's a little nudity, there's a little sex, there's a little sizzle. And then it's like, nope, that's not what I care about. Get her out. She's, she's, she leaves, she's safe. Right, right, yeah. I, that's another thing that's interesting compared to other horror films of the time, at least, but uh, this is just how much of a romance it was. I mean, Cronenberg like, mm. always, you know, he always seems to um, play with sexual themes, but this was very interesting. I mean, it almost kind of felt like a 
you know, fairly, you know, some something in the kind of uh, Phantom of the Opera or Beauty and the Beast or something where there's, yeah. there's this uh, gothic horror element in a, in a, a real romance uh, plot line. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I read that he, uh, you know, he's, he kind of just saw it as a, a realistic love movie, the good, the bad, the surreal, all of the, the bonuses. It was, was a, you know, it, it wasn't your typical Hollywood love story that is just a total fairy tale. And uh, that's something I, I kind of making the tin can, the film we just finished or that's coming out is uh, just, uh, I did relate in in that way because I was kind of making a breakup story, uh, you know, almost a love story just told in reverse. And uh, it's something I think about a lot because uh, it's not so much nowadays, but uh, yeah, you see a lot of relationship stories that are just unbelievable. And this is kind of, a, 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 a believable relationship story told in a very fantasy, you know, medium, which is kind of interesting. And of course, it's featuring a real couple, which which is even oh, more is painful right? to watch. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, they were okay, together. My my mother had a she her favorite movie was Earth Girls Are Easy and she she would be playing that all the time and I and I related quite early that they were the same like I was like is this the sequel or what's going on <laughs> <laughs> so, Yeah no they, okay, they that makes sense they got together on an absolutely terrible comedy called Transylvania Six Five Thousand with which was a, a oh it was god awful it was like a throwback to the thirties and forties Abbott and Costello goofballs and monsters pictures. And I want to say it was made in 84. Um, and it was, it started at Begley Jr. and Goldblum as a couple of wacky reporters who end up in a town full of monsters. And she was a, she was either a real vamp. Davis either played a real vampire or someone who wore fake teeth and dressed up sexy to be a vampirella sort of character. And it's, I mean, I saw that in the theater because I had no childhood. I just kept going so to the Eaton Center. This was before the fly. Yeah, this would have been a couple okay. of years earlier. And so by the time, uh, by the time Cronenberg cast them, they were already a couple. I think Goldblum was cast first. Um, I know that John Lithgow was originally offered the part, but oh, really? um, right after Garb, I think, was when it was going to happen because Cronenberg was supposed to. There's there's this whole alternate universe where David Cronenberg makes Total Recall instead. And because uh, he, he was on, he was on that in the eighty, in the early eighties, in nineteen eighty three, he was supposed to do it with Richard Dreyfus, um, a far less actiony version. It was a much more like cerebral right. picture. I've, and, I've read some of the script; it was interesting. I can oh, see why maybe it wasn't made, but it was. But I, I, I would, I would have loved to see it. Yeah. Oh, I've never read it. I, I'll have to go uh, find it's a, it. There, it's available online. I haven't read it all. I've just read read pieces. But uh, I imagine it would kind. Of, I don't know. It'd be some somewhere would have been somewhere like uh, akin to David Lynch's doing or something like that. That's what I imagined, but right. uh, which, which people didn't, a lot of people didn't like, but I, I personally kind of liked it. I, I didn't really like it. Yeah. It's, it's got, I mean, especially, um, you know, in, in contrast to Villeneuve's film, which I admire, but don't actually enjoy. I, I like watching Lynch just mess around and try to figure out what it is he's dealing with in this gigantic machinery. Oh Yeah. But the idea of Cronenberg doing a sci-fi, like a sci-fi action movie right after Scanners, which is, I think, how it was supposed to go. That, or Scanners is why he got 
the offer. Um, and Lithgow was in there somewhere. Maybe he was the villain. I'm not totally sure. I don't know if, I mean, I, I know the, the roles weren't the same, but I, he wouldn't have been the Michael Ironside equivalent. I don't think maybe the Ronnie Cox, but he was probably part of it. And then that didn't happen. So he was going to do the fly, or at least he was offered the fly, but he said he didn't want to work with the prosthetics and it was too gruesome and he didn't want to make horror movies. So Goldblum comes. And I think that's how Davis gets wind of it. And the two of them together are just, they're playing the nightmare version of their own relationship. You know, like they're a reasonably new couple. They're deeply in love and they are losing each other on camera. And it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. Cool. Well, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> They're both yeah. very good. Um, yeah, yeah, I've some never good, some great deliveries too. Uh, just some of those lines. They're just actually when I was watching it uh, today, I noticed that line. What was it? A uh, be afraid, be very afraid. I just I always pictured that was an old Vincent Price line, and, that, <laughs> and I re realized it originated with the fly. Actually, it's just been recycled in The Simpsons and all the you know in in uh, pop culture so much that it yeah, just, it's it's been absorbed. It's, it's been assimilated tell where it came from but yeah that that, I, that was their their tagline or it was the poster, poster copy yeah uh yeah. i had a poster for for years probably in an unhealthy position of of worship on my on my wall uh it's such a great image it's such an unnerving simple tease you know you can't see what's inside but it's not right and um i mean it just it's it's the box art it's never changed it's always been that yeah, simple. Yeah. No, it's a great, yeah, it's a great cover. Yeah. And it was in the trailer too, Be Afraid, Be Very Afraid. And the thing that's amazing about that line is that Davis just throws it away. She's not like she's not selling it. Yeah, nobody, yeah, yeah. nobody knew well, it was the tagline. It just it's part of the film. <laughs> yeah, it's not super heavy. I read today that it was uh that Mel Brooks actually thought of that line. He was the producer, I believe. And uh, he was, he yeah. Was just, and he just threw that line at, at David uh she, she should be afraid and uh, it kind of stuck. So. Oh, I didn't fun. know that. That's great. <laughs> Brooks is a, you know, Brooks is a, as a godfather of, of auteurist directors is something nobody really talks about, but he made, like he made the elephant man for Lynch after seeing. Right. Right. Eraserhead. And he produced the fly because he liked, I think the dead zone, but I'm not totally sure. I don't know how that relationship mm -hmm. started and they only ever made one movie together. Well, it was, I, I, yeah, he's not credited. And I think it's, probably because he he really had you know the mel brooks package and it would be a little confusing to you know see his name on the fly but, yeah it was just his production company brooks films um but Stuart kornfeld i think was his guy well i heard he that uh, i heard that he's that uh cronenberg wrote a sequel whether you call it a sequel or it's like an uh i think it was like a kind of a sequel but a and not a, a traditional type of sequel, but Brooks wasn't interested in doing it because it was too far away from the fly format. So, mm. um, yeah, I mean, any anything that follows is going to feel alien, right? Because you can't replicate the. They try, like Chris Wallace tried uh, the the makeup artist uh, for the first film, who directed the second, The Fly Two. Okay. Um, How's him? He tried. Have you seen it? It's not good. I, I did see it when I was a kid. I haven't watched it in a while. I remember it was kind of they they leaned a little harder into like the barf attacks and 
<laughs> yeah. We got a little, uh, a little bit more, ex, you know, ex, exploitation film. Yeah, it's more effectsy, but also it tries to replicate the sense of claustrophobia and and limited the world of the story the same way the first film does. And you can just feel it not working because the chemistry, like the alchemy of having Goldblum and Davis together, um, with the occasional intrusion by by John Getz or, her, or, or Ronnie going out and seeing Stathis and all those other ways that it breaks it up because Seth doesn't interact with anybody else. He's such a hermit in the story, in the narrative, that well, when he yeah. goes outside, it's jarring even before he starts to deteriorate. You know, that the moment where he crashes into, um, into the, the OBGYN clinic is such an invasion of that world in so many ways. But, but one of them I keep coming back to is like, I've never seen this person under fluorescent light and it's terrifying. He's really alien in that space. By the time he gets there, he's mutated so much that he's almost unrecognizable as a person except for the eyes. And it's just, it's so shattering because, and, and I'm, again, when you see it with a crowd, like they're already unnerved because there were not a lot of gynecologist scenes in movies in the eighties. Uh, I think Cronenberg is responsible for something like 90% of them between the fly and dead ringers. <laughs> right. Yeah. And people and, were just like off. They were, they felt the tension. And even though it's safe and quiet space, it's not right. They could, they were just, they, they were not processing the scene as calming. And then Brundle shows up and it just becomes this absolute nightmare. Well, I mean, I think everyone on a very, you know, on on the you know just a very simple basis of uh you know old age that kind of metaphor you know dying of of a disease that mm -hmm. i think a lot of people could just that resonates with people because you're we as people are always being kind of stalked by death and it's just it's there you can't you, it's like the end yeah. <laughs> it's coming for you whether it's the terminator you know so yeah. that that part i just uh I can see uh, just because it's so baked in. For me, though, I, you know, I, I like kind of read this movie. It's like the the what what I kind of relate to is just the, the. I'm a reclusive person. I you know I I do I, I just I'm very focused on my work and just the you know the re reclusive workaholic kind of syndrome and almost being consumed by work and and transformed by it to you know often not for better and that's something that happens with me when i'm you know making a film it's just very all-encompassing and i kind of feel like i turn into a monster and uh, <laughs> make poor decisions <laughs> so I, I i don't know i can kind of see like an io uh, an autobiographical element for cronenberg when he's making this possibly but yeah I but that's how i how i relate to it I never thought of it as an allegory for artists, but you're absolutely right. I mean, he's doing something that will change the world and infect potentially people in a weird way, which is what art, I mean, yeah, it's at its best version, it's what art does because you never let it go. You carry it with you forever. But the hubris is what undermines him. So I don't know. It's more of a Michael Bay thing than an actual artist thing, I suppose. In the end, that was <laughs> Michael Bay. That wasn't fair. Actually, I heard that Michael Bay was uh, Fox wanted him to direct the sequel. That would have <laughs> been a bad choice. <laughs> Sorry, Michael Bay, but you know. I heard Del Toro was offered, but but passed right, because right. he just couldn't imagine doing something that that had the same emotional impact. Well, I can't imagine Michael Bay's reason. Yeah, I'm still holding out for the that uh, David Cronenberg will do his sequel someday. Um, We'll see.
Yeah, I wonder. I never saw the opera, which apparently has different elements that could be carried forward. He, he, he. I remember when he talked about oh, the sequel. Right. The one time he alluded to the opera being the gateway. That it was that was what led him see that there was another way to do it. Oh, cool. Okay. But, yeah. I, yeah, I wasn't. I, I don't know much about the opera. Is it? Is it? Uh, I, I thought there was like a Broadway show of, of it or something, but it was an opera. Yeah, I think it was in Germany or Italy. It was. It was definitely never cool. performed in Canada because I would have found okay. a way to go. A Broadway nice. version of The Fly would be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm just. Now that I say that, I'm like, what are you talking about? It's no, like a Simpsons it, parody of itself already. Yeah. <laughs> But that, yeah, opera makes a lot more sense because it is a very operatic movie, you know, in, in, mm. in a way. Even yeah. the music, uh, I just, uh, yeah, like you, you, you said, it, you know, it's very symphonic, very, very much like um, Howard Shore kind of stuff uh, has a very mystery, mystery, mysterious kind of undertone. Um, but, but it kind of like it, I found the soundtrack really transforms like the character does like the first half of the movie is you know you almost like you're feeling like this romance sax or french horn in these scenes and uh then it yeah then it then the music like slowly gets more dissonant and you know music less musical in some ways and more and uh in in the piece kind of changes and more symphonic and i found that pretty interesting and really effective it's not my favorite soundtrack by him but it, i it do find it's like a perfect soundtrack yeah and uh yeah like in the opening the opening is it's very beautiful and uh and uh just the image of whatever i don't even know what we're looking at but it's it looks like to me it's like a pixelized view of what a you know what the view of a fly might look like but you're also, but it's a shot of people as well. And they kind of look like insects. So I don't know if I'm looking at insects or looking at people through the eyes of an insect. Yeah. It's incredibly but, uh, off-putting, right? And then it resolves into a party, which yeah. Yeah. <laughs> shot at the AGO, which is, I think it's, oh, that cool. section of it is still there. It's the reception hall in the big, in the center with the pillars. Oh, um, okay, very and cool. every time I walk through there, I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, nothing, right. nothing good can come from this place. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I mean, you know, for me, a party is quite terrifying as an mm-hmm. introvert. But <laughs> yeah, I'm always convinced that people would rather be talking to someone else. But I'm, I, I enjoy standing around with a drink in my hand. It's a nice image, yeah. you know. It's, it's yeah. what one cultivates of oneself. That's true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I wanted to make sure we talked about Tin Can and and the way that it does tie into the fly, but also in the ways that it doesn't, which is that it is a a film about isolation and and communication in so many ways, which the fly also is, but as you say, it's a romance that runs in reverse. So it's something else to, to deal with. I don't even know how to discuss it in in audio terms in in a way that people can understand it, but I think we should, I'm assuming you want to preserve the surprise and and where it goes and what it becomes. Uh, Yeah. I'm not too precious about it really. I mean, talking about it is 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 less intrusive in a way than trailers for me i'm not a fan of trailers mm, yeah. <laughs> i find trailers are just like it's like a some visual synopsis and it's kind of just it takes the wind out of it but discussing things it's you know you're not seeing them so i'm totally cool with whatever yeah okay i don't watch trailers because i don't want the information like i just don't want images yeah. in my head that i'm eventually going to have to connect to the film it's like well this guy can't die because i've seen three shots of him in different situations that haven't happened yet it's like time travel i don't want to know 
I, I mean, I, I generally like the idea of trailers because of they because they tell you if you want to see the movie or not, you know, if you can mm-hmm. get a sense of that. But over the last, I don't know, 15 years or whatever it's been, they've just gone off the deep end. <laughs> like yeah. the Netflix trailers literally just last for seven minutes or so. <laughs> what struck me about Tin Can watching it is that the characters themselves are changing, but the movie is also taking a new form. Uh, the movie is the Brundlefly in this case. Cool. Yeah, I, I like that. I'll use that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. was that always the was that always the idea going in to to do something that just becomes a different thing? Well, I, I definitely, you know, I was I was very interested in in um, yeah transformation and uh, I I just I kind of I did I knew I was making a kind of a, a person in a box type story and uh, partly. That came from, you know, budgetary reasons. But I kind of like the restrictions it would bring, and uh, and you know, with restrictions, it, you get it, it generate you start generating a lot of ideas because uh, how am I going to make this interesting for you know for the forty five minutes this person's in a small small you know three by five uh, tin can uh, well. You have to get creative about um, what you do with that space, and uh, it was very organic when we were coming up with this thing. We, the, you know, the, the very beginning when I was writing this with my co-writer Darcy Spidle, we were, uh, it was all going to take place in that thing, and then we started thinking about space and imprisonment and how it could change and uh, prisons within prisons and how small can a prison be, and and that, I think that's kind of where the the suit came from and uh and just decided it would be a lot more interesting if instead of this being the typical you know imprisonment film within like a coffin or something if if half of the movie or a large part um was on the outside and is that any better you know so yeah i really i mean it's it's very effective from the, from the perspective of someone who had no idea where it was going. And oh, good. Uh, I interviewed Anna for the um, uh, for Now's Rising Screen Stars issue. I guess it would have been 2019. And she yeah. just shot know. it, I think. Is that right? <laughs> Did you shoot it in the fall of 2018? Uh, we, 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 we actually, we shot it early 2019, before the pandemic, yeah. Yeah, so she must have just been going to do it. But she was so high on the idea of something that just needed her. Like that was how she she pitched it. It's like it's going to be me doing this, and is, she was yeah. really excited. And and I saw the film. It's like, yeah, that's it. She's the movie. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there, <laughs> and and you really need a, a certain type of actor for that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I mean, uh, we there was actually a large part of the film wasn't her. I mean, it is her as a character, but, it, you know, it, it was with our body double, Kristen Langell, oh. and uh, and some of our other, uh, you know, it, it, you know, there's like a segment of the film where it's kind of like a silent movie. And I mean, I like that. Uh, it's it's not for everyone, but <laughs> but uh, it's a, yeah, it's a whole different method of acting and it's a, and it's a whole different experience as well. Yeah, it was really striking. Um, I think it works. And I, I I hope people see it because that's 
our job collectively <laughs> to get people's attention on the stuff that deserves the time. Um, and yeah, then after that, they should go pick up the fly and just take another look at it. It's on yes. Disney Plus in Canada, which I find wow. absolutely bizarre. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, there's sort of a duet. You don't need the fly too, but I think Tin Can and the fly will will play well together. Yeah, I'd say it's a good companion piece. Uh, it's a good. Yep, uh, they both share some. Actually, uh, his son Brandon Cronenberg uh, was a script editor on Tin Can. Oh, nice! I didn't know. Um, that. Yeah, yeah, we met at TIFF during the Crescent, and uh, we had just. Uh, I've been talking and, uh, you know, whenever I'm writing a script, it's, it's a tricky question. Like who, who can I bounce this off of? That's going to have, you know, Oh, who, who's like-minded enough to understand what I'm going for, but, you know, also be able to have, you know, some criticism and, and, uh, yeah, he, he was pretty open to it and gave us some great ideas and, and, uh, yeah. So, that was kind of interesting. <laughs> that was nice, nice for me. I, I love his films, though, uh, Brandon. And um, yeah, I just watched Possessor again recently. And it was he. I think he was shooting that while we were shooting Tin Can. So yeah, he actually makes sense. He, he stole my assistant director, actually, because it's <laughs> a guy, guy I like working with, but he works with him every time. So <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Possessor was a beautiful movie. Yeah, Possessor has similar DNA too to not the fly, but to Tin Can. They're, they're both films about depersonalization and 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 loss of self in really, really different yeah, ways. Yeah. But they also have these. I hate to I hate the phrase avant-garde, but they're they have experimental sequences built in which challenge the audience for the genre. And in both cases, I think they land pretty well. Oh, cool. Yeah, no, I think yeah, yeah, that's definitely a great movie. And, uh, yeah, you know, you just, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you come up with a topic and you just try to explore it, uh, from every angle and see, see where it takes you. I, I do, I really do find that, uh, films are kind of these organic beings that just kind of tell you what they want to be. And, uh, and you just kind of have to follow even, uh, after they're fin- finished, they're still alive. It's just, it's been amazing to me with Tin Can how, we shot this um, before the pandemic, but as we've been going through this whole COVID, COVID phase, it, it's it's really changed the meaning in a lot of ways. We go from oh, this movie's kind of about uh, you know being trapped. You're talking to people, you know, over the phone. There, you know, you're not. It's like a radio play, and uh, it's about quarantine. But now it's like to me, it's kind of more about. You know, you, you, there's this disease that's always stalking you, but it's like you have to kind of live with it. There, you know, it's it, but so it's been interesting how the, for me, how the movie's aging and changing as it ages, <laughs> very quickly. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not that the times have caught up with it. It's that it's probably got a couple of things that we still haven't hit yet. <laughs> yeah, I'm still waiting for the fungal uh, pandemic. So oh. we'll see how we do with that. <laughs> It's coming. I'm sure it's coming. I'll, I'll miss mushrooms. Bend. Yeah, I'll miss mushrooms on uh, on spaghetti, but, you know, some sacrifices must be made. Absolutely. My thanks to Seth Smith, whose personal Brundlefly Tin Can, starring friend of the show Anna Hopkins, is now available on VOD from Level Film. Thanks also to Laura Steen. She knows what she did. You can find Seth on Twitter at sth underscore smth, 
And you can find The Fly on Blu-ray in Shout Factory's Fly Collection, a five-disc set that also includes The Fly 2, meh, and the three original 20th Century Fox movies from the 50s. The earlier Fox Home Entertainment discs are still out there, too, and it's also available to stream on Disney Plus in Canada, I wasn't kidding, and on Craven Amazon with the Stars package. In the U.S., it's on Prime Video. You can also find it for rental or purchase on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. And if you missed the announcement last episode, I've made the first year of the podcast available for download, just $20 at payhip.com Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. Great guests, great films. If you like the show the way it is now, here's a chance to find out how we got here. The full track list is just a click away at payhip.com semcast. And that's the episode. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.